This SCCMI Critical Care podcast is sponsored by Nestle Health Science. Our pediatric portfolio offers a comprehensive range of standard and specialty formulas for oral use and tube feeding, including Peptamin Jr., a 100% whey protein peptide-based formula for children with GI impairment. Nestle Health Science, nourishing professional health. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Elizabeth Emrath, MD, on the newest recommendations for provision of nutrition in critically ill children, which she presented at the SCCM Pediatric Review Course uh, in San Diego in February 2019. Dr. Emrath is an assistant professor at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. Welcome, Elise. Thank you very much, Margaret. I'm very happy to be here. I really appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to come on and talk about nutrition in our critically ill children. Great. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? I have no financial disclosures. Okay. Would you start by giving us some background, uh, talk about the previous guidelines, uh, where things were before this newest set of guidelines? Sure. So um, the first set of guidelines was actually published back in uh, 2009 by the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Um, And it was a very nice set of guidelines uh, that really sort of honed in on what the current uh, evidence was for um, how to feed children in the pediatric ICU. Um, And it talked a little bit about how we screen children for uh, malnutrition how we assess their energy needs, um, and then how we should feed them, whether they should be enterally fed, and also whether we should use certain things like immunonutrition. Um, and so it was done back in 2009. Um, and so this current set of guidelines was published in uh, 2017 as an update to those guidelines. Great. How were these guidelines developed? So one thing that, the, that was done a little bit differently from the previous set of guidelines for this one was, what, was that this set of guidelines was actually a joint effort by, the, um, by ASPEN, which is American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine. So they convened a task force of multidisciplinary um, members um, and experts in the field, whether that was physicians or dietitians, nurses, um, pharmacists, that met and looked at all of the current available evidence that was out there regarding um, nutrition and how we feed children in the pediatric ICU. Um, And they reviewed it all and decided based on the current evidence, they came up with a a set of guidelines that sort of added to the guidelines that were from 2009. Um, And really one of the big differences is that there's been a lot more uh, research that's been done uh, since 2009 in on nutrition in the pediatric ICU population. Um, and so they were able to sort of add to their guidelines from 2009 and, and say we've had updated evidence to sort of, you know, make additional recommendations. So these guidelines, uh, they were uh, developed based on what ended up being a variety of cohort studies, uh, randomized control trials and observational studies. There were a total of 16 randomized control trials and 37 cohort studies that were used to develop these guidelines. 
the reviewers and the task force, they used the sort of grade um, criteria to rank the guidelines essentially, so that um, which the grade criteria is the grading for recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. Um, and it just sort of allowed them to assign um, basically the recommendation um, for how strong the guidelines were based on sort of how, how strong each sort of recommendation is based on the evidence. These guidelines are developed uh, in a kind of practical form um, of eight questions and answers surrounding different topics in pediatric critical care and nutrition. Um, how about we talk about these recommendations in each section and how those recommendations were reached? The first section is nutritional status evaluation in the PICU population. You want to tell us about that? The guidelines are actually meant to um, to apply to children ages one month to 18 years um, and um, really expected to be in the ICU for greater than two days. So not children that are there for just a few days. So yeah, the first section really relates to how does nutrition, nutritional status affect outcome in our critically ill uh, children. And and really what are the best ways to screen for nutrition, adequate nutritional status or for malnutrition or for obesity? Um, and so essentially the sort of to the first question um, of how does nutritional status affect outcomes, we basically know that, that poor nutritional status or malnutrition um, and obesity uh, has a negative impact or ne um, on the outcomes in pediatric um, ICU patients. There's been observational studies uh, that have shown adverse outcomes um, in malnourished patients, um, including increased risk of hospital-acquired infections, uh, increased mortality, uh, increased amount of time on the ventilator, and also longer length of stay, um, in, in, in particular for patients that um, are malnourished at baseline and also those that become malnourished during their PICU stay. The committee felt like that based on those studies and because uh, malnutrition plays an important role in, in affecting outcomes that patients should really undergo a detailed nutritional assessment within 48 hours um, of admission to the PICU. So that was one of their recommendations uh, in the first set. Um, and a detailed nutritional assessment usually includes a dietary history, um, anthropometrics, uh, functional status evaluation, um, a, a nutrition-focused uh, physical exam. They recommended that the sort of a nutritional evaluation be reevaluated weekly while a child is in the ICU. However, they also go on to talk about how they recognize that this sort of evaluation may not be feasible for a lot of ICUs given staffing and time and and resources. And so what they talk about is that one of the best ways to sort of screen um, patients uh, for um, to find those children that might be most at risk uh, for nutritional deterioration during their time in the ICU is to use anthropometrics. Um, so that would be um, a weight and a height or a length for every child to evaluate the BMI or the weight for length disease scores. Um, and then also for children under the age of three years to do a head circumference. Um, unfortunately, there is no current validated screen for PICU patients. I think that's something that's 
people are working on trying to develop, but there's no good quick screening method that's going to tell you whether a child is at risk or not at risk um, and for nutritional deterioration. And so one of the ways that you can evaluate for that is to use the anthropometrics. The second question uh, in the guidelines relates to the evaluation of energy requirements in critically ill children. How do we figure out their caloric needs? Yeah, and I think uh, this is a, a, a big topic for um, anybody who uh, works with children in the ICU is basically how, how do you make sure that they're getting the right amount of energy, not too much and not too little, so that they can um, not only heal, um, but also continue to grow as many of our children are doing. And, and um, you know, I think one of the things that the there's been a good amount of literature on um, over the last you know, several years in both the pediatric and the adult population is that the use of predictive equations um, to to tell us how many calories to feed somebody are inaccurate. Um, and so the first part of uh, this sort of section of guidelines um, recommends that that the energy requirement or prescription for a child be developed based on in the use of indirect calorimetry and measurements from indirect calorimetry. Um, and this is a, a test that can be done with a machine um, at the bedside. Um, and it tells, it sort of uses the amount of carbon dioxide um, uh, produced and the amount of oxygen consumed and puts it into an equation that gives us a number for resting energy expenditure. Um, and the, it, there's been quite a few studies that have shown that that, that is more accurate than um, the use of an equation that was developed um, based off of, you know, sometimes other healthy children or other children or adults um, to develop, to tell us how many calories to feed somebody. So the recommendation is to, to use indirect calorimetry. Unfortunately, um, indirect calorimetry cannot be used in every situation. So there are limitations to the technology. Um, first of all, it's, it, it is uh, a machine that requires uh, a, re a local resource to be able to staff it, to know how to use it, to know how to troubleshoot it, um, and also to take the time to come do the test. Um, and so, and oftentimes um, that is whoever's trained at your institution, if you're lucky enough to have a machine that does this. So not, I know not a lot of institutions have the indirect calorimetry or the metabolic cart uh, to be able to even perform the test. And even in institutions where uh, it's available, it's not um, something that is used all of the time. But it is a, a sort of a finite resource. Indirect calorimetry is a finite resource. And so, uh, the reality is that even though the recommendation is to use indirect calorimetry, um, there are a lot of places that are going to continue to use predictive equations, um, despite the fact that we know that they're not as accurate. But that's all we have, right? That's sort of the better than nothing. Um, and so the committee actually recommends two different predictive equations. Um, and the first is the Schofield equation, and the other one is the uh, Food Agricultural Organization, the World Health Organization, the United Nations University equation. That is all one equation, the second one. Um, and they actually recommend that you use these equations without adding stress factors. Um, and the reason is because um, while we think that children 
are uh, prone to be in a hyper metabolism state while they're critically ill, that has actually not shown to be true all of the time. For example, Meta et al. Um, compared uh, indirect calorimetry to predictive equations in 29 patients um, and actually found that in 55% of those patients, uh, they were what would be considered hypometabolic um, as opposed to only 17% being hypermetabolic. And this sort of tends to echo other studies in the pediatric population um, that, that children aren't, don't always have this revved up metabolism. So the, the committee felt like that if we were going to use predictive equations, that uh, we should not be using an, an addition of a stress factor on, onto those measurements. And then the sort of last part of this recommendation is that um, how much should we try to feed the kids? So we have this number that says we should feed a certain amount of calories. That would be the goal. How, what is, is the goal to get 100% of that? And actually, um, the recommendation is for delivery of at least two-thirds of the prescribed daily energy um, requirement by the end of the first week in the PICU. And so while that may seem like that's easy to do, it's actually not because we, we know from looking at studies that there are um, lots of interruptions to when we feed children in the ICU, whether that's they need to not have food in their stomach because of how sick they are versus we think that we're about to do a procedure on them or take out a breathing tube. Um, there's lots of reasons why we stop feeds on children that are in the ICU. And so um, they have found that um, getting at least two-thirds of the daily goal calorie intake within the first week is related to improved um, mortality in observational studies. So that is how the committee came to that recommendation. Uh, in addition to caloric requirements, it's also important to uh, consider protein requirements. How do we figure out a child's protein needs? That's a, also a great question as well. Um, and so right now, the the committee, and this was a uh, one of the changes for these guidelines, was that they recommended higher protein than had been recommended before. So uh, the goal protein intake uh, is about one and a half grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, and this is also based on several studies that showed uh, that protein intake above this level leads to a positive nitrogen balance. Um, and a positive nitrogen balance is associated with basically providing enough substrates for catabolism and also helps attenuate the uh, uh, loss of lean body mass. Um, and there has been a, a study that has shown that patients receiving greater than 60% of their protein goal um, intake had an improved 60-day mortality um, compared to those receiving, receiving less than 20% of their goal. Um, so based on this information, the committee felt like giving children a protein um, goal that would help, uh, help give them a positive nitrogen balance is really what would help um, you know, make sure that they're meeting their protein needs. They also, with this sort of set of uh, recommendations, recommended um, early protein provision. Um, and so making sure that you're getting your protein early in the patient's course. Specifically, the what protein dose is associated with improved outcomes is unknown. So that was just the sort of baseline dose of 1.5 grams per kilo per day recommended. Um, some children may require more than that. Um, and 
really more studies need to be done with uh, with the role of enteral or with enteral protein, whether parenteral protein would be helpful is, is you know, unclear. The one thing the committee did say is they do not recommend the use of the recommended daily allowance for protein because this was developed for healthy children. The next uh, three questions um, in the guidelines relate to enteral feeding. Why should we feed enterally? How should we feed enterally? When should we feed enterally? You want to address those questions? Sure. Um, the, so yeah, so sort of really getting to the meat of, of how we actually give, provide nutrition to our kids. Um, and so the first is, um, talks about, um, is it feasible? Is it really possible? Is it, is it uh, to, uh, to feed, uh, children? Is it beneficial while they're sick, like to feed them while they're sick like this? Um, and it, and it is, there have been studies that have shown, um, that um, enteral nutrition is um, helps strengthen the function of the GI mucosal barrier, um, helps to decrease ba bacterial translocation, and can improve um, uh, gut immune function. Um, and there have been studies showing uh, lower mortality with a greater delivery of enteral nutrition goals. And the same thing has not been seen when you look at delivery of parenteral nutrition. Um, so, and, and some of the questions that people often have is in the pediatric ICU population is about safety around enteral feeding. You know, is it safe to feed a child who is receiving um, a vasoactive medication? There are not studies out there that really show a level of vasoactive medication of, at which it's safe to feed. However, there have been some pediatric studies where there have been patients on vasoactive medications that have um, and where it has been shown to be safe to feed them. So, so while we can't say a specific level, I think it is possible to feed children who might be requiring vasopressors. Um, and again, all of these guidelines and recommendations are to be considered in the context of the patient. And so um, a patient who is on very high dose pressors and is super sick and may not be the best candidate for that, but somebody who is on a lower dose of pressor, you might consider it if, if you feel like it's uh, appropriate. The committee recommends that um, when you start feeding the patients that you develop an algorithm um, for uh, a feeding pro or a feeding protocol within your unit. Um, that works best for your unit and your team. And that's because there have been a couple of studies that have showed that protocols help achieve feeding goals faster um, than units and, and uh, than when there's not a feeding protocol available. Um, and this is maybe it helps bedside providers troubleshoot things like intolerance. It helps us advance feeds without, you know, having the physician at the bedside every few minutes or every few hours to, to turn them up. Um, and so and sort of helps get to children to their goal faster. So they do recommend that you have a, a stepwise algorithm and also a dedicated sort of nutrition support team that includes a dedicated RD. Um, having a, there's been studies that show that having a dedicated R, RD, in, or which is a registered dietitian involved, helps you meet your goals um, and has been associated with uh, more adequate protein intake in, in um, patients that are in the hospital. Um, and then in terms of how to feed children and whether you should um, do uh, like the best site for enteral nutrition delivery, which would be gastric versus small bowel, there's really insufficient evidence to be able to make a good recommendation. Um, the committee 
then says gastric root is preferred, but this is really just due to the fact that um, it may be considered a little bit more physiologic to feed gastrically, um, and that there hasn't been a lot of evidence to show that feeding postpylorically is better than feeding gastrically. Um, but that is because there's just a lack of evidence out there. Um, and so there's a lot of places that choose to feed children postpylorically. And again, that's totally fine. There's no evidence that says right now that says that that's worse. And so I think that's one of the areas in which there's a lot of interest in doing further research is uh, whether the gastric root is really preferred or whether uh, postpyloric will be better um, in the long run. Um, the committee does recommend that an enteral feeds be initiated um, in all critically ill children that um, you're able to within 24 to 48 hours. Um, and again, of course, this depends on the um, stability of the child and up to the clinician preference, but that is the recommendation. And it has been shown that it's safe to start feeding some children uh, that early into their pediatric ICU course. What is the role of parenteral nutrition in the critically ill child? So this uh, recommendation is, is based solely on one randomized control trial that's, that's out there. Um, um, and really the recommendation is do not start parenteral nutrition within 24 hours of admission. And this randomized control trial that was done um, was uh, a three-center RCT where basically a group that was randomized to receive parenteral nutrition after a week um, of admission um, had better outcomes in terms of fewer infections and shorter length of stay compared to those who got parenteral nutrition um, within the first 24 hours uh, of admission. Now, that study um, cannot be applied to all patients, um, and there were limitations with that study, um, one of which being that the patients uh, had a, a significant amount of enteral nutrition that they were getting as well, too, so the parenteral nutrition was supplemental, um, and, um, and so that was just sort of one of the uh, limitations to the study, um, which sort of keeps it from being extrapolated to all children in the ICU. For example, if you have a child that you're not able for whatever reason to feed them enterally at all, you know, how long do you wait to start parental nutrition in those children is, and is really a question for which we don't have a lot of uh, evidence to answer. Uh, but the committee does uh, recommend starting supplemental uh, parental nutrition in children where you are not able to feed enterally at all um, within the first week, and especially in patients that might be coming in and mal malnourished at baseline. Um, so, so again, sort of out of that randomized control trial, the biggest sort of strongest recommendation is don't start parental nutrition within 24 hours of admission. Um, and then after that, it becomes sort of based on the patient, the clinical scenario, and, and how quickly you're going to be able to, to start enteral feeds. The final question addressed by the guidelines is um, immunonutrition. What do the guidelines tell us about immunonutrition? Well, immunonutrition actually refers to the use of nutritional components um, and a combination that provides therapeutic benefits. And it includes things like omega-3 fatty acids, fiber, antioxidants, um, arginine. There are a variety of formula products out on the market that sort of claim to offer benefit based on those uh, components. Um, but there's not any real evidence that says that any of these things are beneficial in the pediatric population. 
Um, and so it is actually not recommended to use immunonutrition at all in children. Um, and part of this is because there's so little data in the pediatric population. The few studies that have been done were very small and not powered to actually show changes, uh, differences in outcomes. Um, and um, in the adult population, there have been some uh, immunonutrition that um, formula and products that have actually been shown to be associated with worse mortality um, and worse outcomes. Um, and so uh, because of the potential for harm based on what is seen in some of the adult data and also the um, lack of pediatric data showing benefit, the committee actually recommend that immunonutrition not be used um, at all in the, the pediatric population. Um, thank you for covering the content of the guidelines. That's really helpful. Do you have suggestions for how clinicians can incorporate these guidelines into their practice? Yeah, I think one of the best things that a, a clinicians can do is to develop a team that's interested um, and sort of a multidisciplinary team at their institution that's interested in in um, feeding children and that to include bedside staff and the dietitian, of course, and um, pharmacist, and to try to sort of figure out what works for their individual unit based on the types of patients that they see um, and you know the, the clinical services that they can provide easily um, and in terms of how to get everybody involved to be able to, to put these guidelines into practice. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to start by coming up with a feeding algorithm um, or a feeding protocol for the unit. And it can start small and just talk about how to start enteral feeds and how to advance them and ways to look for intolerance. And it can um, evolve over time and, um, and to turn into how to use things that will help with, you know, sort of adjuncts that will help with uh, feeding. So uh, whether you need to have a bowel regimen, things like that. Um, and so um, I think that's probably one of the best ways clinical teams can um, help meet nutrition goals for their patient population. You made reference uh, as you were going through the guidelines to the need for future research. What do you think are the most pressing future research needs with regards to uh, nutrition in the critically ill child? Um, well, I think there are several. I think um, the things that um, are probably the most pressing, the um, a nutrition screen for pediatric patients so that we can really identify those children who are most at risk um, for uh, nutritional deterioration and we can sort of allocate our resources accordingly. Um, I think that whether indirect calorimetry really improves outcomes is something that is important to study. Um, we know that it's a more accurate way to figure out a caloric needs for children, but does that actually, having an accurate caloric need uh, and how do, how does that improve uh, long-term outcomes? And also how does nutritional status and feeding children uh, um, improve outcomes in general? Whether um, sort of the optimal energy dose, um, the optimal protein dose, those are all things that are still needing to be studied. And I think the things that matter sort of most to people um, from a day-to-day -day basis are what is the really the best way to feed children? Does it matter if you do a gastric feeds versus post-pyloric feeds? Um, does, how, how do we measure intolerance? You know, something that's a big topic 
uh, at a lot of places is the use of uh, gastric residual volume to measure intolerance and um, is something that was in the most recent adult guidelines actually taken out and or recommended against using gastric residual volumes because it hasn't been shown to be associated really with with intolerance and and the was touched upon in these guidelines um but um again there's not enough evidence for the committee to make a strong recommendation against using gastric residual volumes is a practice that's done at a lot of places and i think uh, it's something that is a practical thing that people want um answers on how do we measure tolerance and at the bedside and so i think uh, studies that look for how do we assess and, and tolerance is is something that would be helpful as well um, and and really also the optimal timing for parenteral nutrition um, so when is it appropriate to do parenteral nutrition in certain patient populations when is it appropriate to do supplemental parenteral nutrition if you can feed a little bit to the gut but not a hundred percent of nutrition do you really get much uh, benefit from and meeting the rest of your nutrition goals via the uh, via parental nutrition. And so those are some of the things that I think lots of people have questions about that would be good to, to answer in the future. There's certainly a lot of work to be done, and these are not going to be easy studies to do, but um, certainly a worthwhile area that we need to address. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? No, I think I agree with that, that this is an area that has lots of uh, both practical sort of questions to help people care for children on a daily basis and um, and also more long-term questions in terms of what, what's optimal for affecting long-term outcomes um, as well. And so I think um, it's an exciting field and, and it's in a way in which we can help help our children um, get better. And, and so hopefully there will be more and more research coming out um, to kind of do just that. The guidelines can be found in the July 2017 issues of uh, Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in the Journal of Parenteral um, and Enteral Nutrition. Thank you very much, Elise, for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. We have been talking with Dr. Elise Emrath from the Medical University of South Carolina about the newest guidelines for the provision of nutrition in critically ill children. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by Nestle Health Science. Our pediatric portfolio offers a comprehensive range of standard and specialty formulas for oral use and tube feeding, including Peptamin Jr., a 100% whey protein peptide-based formula for children with GI impairment. Nestle Health Science. Nourishing professional health. Join or renew your membership with SCCM the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.